our Father in heaven is the great I am. Thank you, Jeff. You know, even more than a song well sung in terms of talent of voice, such a blessing to enjoy music saying when you know the singer believes it and is convicted by it. So praise God for that. Oh, it's good to see you today. Thank you for uh, coming to this windy sanctuary. There was a day we didn't have these fans, and so this is a blessing <laughs> to have the air moving. Just before uh, we set up our, our study today, I, I just want to share for, for what it's worth that um, this coming week, my wife and I, kids, are, we're going to take a little vacation time, and so we won't be here for several Sabbaths, and uh, uh, vacation is wonderful. Uh, but we'll certainly be thinking of our church family as well. We're, we're going to head over to Michigan, and um, my brother is an educator. He's the Bible teacher chaplain at Columbia Adventist Academy, and he has a meeting in Chicago, which is near where my mom lives in southwest Michigan, and so uh, we're heading over there. We'll, we'll see my mom, both my sisters and their family, my brother and his family, me and my family, Brenda's brother and his family, Brenda's mom and dad, Brenda's aunt, a lot of family all right there clustered together, and we're just going to have a nice time and uh, looking forward to it. And so, um, pray for us as we travel and, and look forward to uh, joining you again in several Sabbaths. Well, let's set up our, our journey, our portion today in the book of James. I really hope that you have been enriched by this time in the book of James and I really encourage you, after you hear a message, it is really kind of a, a good idea to, at some point after the Sabbath, to read the section that we looked at, to help it just kind of anchor in just a, a little bit deeper. But let's set up today's study. So, earlier in his letter to the early, early Christian church, James referenced what he called the royal law. We saw that in James 2, verse 8. He said this, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Clearly, a major guiding moral law, moral principle in the church then and on throughout to this day was to live out Jesus' emphasis on person-to-person relationships. Love the other in the same way you love yourself. The underlining assumption is that we instinctively hold ourselves as important, that we matter, and we ought to extend that importance and that significance to others as well. The question is, was that a reality in the early, early, early church? Remember, this is the first uh, earliest written document of the New Testament, written to a very young Christian church. Was this the reality of what was going on in the church? Well, notice what James has already kind of addressed in his letter and what we now label the first three chapters. First, he acknowledged there was a significant persecution and says, use that persecution experience to build character growth. But it tells us there was persecution. Persecution creates stress in the community. And yes, that can draw people into unity together, but it can also divide. And persecution can also create debate of compromise in the church. 
A few verses later, James talks about the, the double-minded individual who vacillated between love of God and love of the world. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to connect to that double-minded idea again. And numerous times throughout his letter this far, he has addressed and given caution and, and tried to infuse wisdom into us using our language carefully as we communicate in these person-to-person -person relationships. Remember, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, talking about bridling and taming the tongue. James has addressed the biases that existed in the church. They were showing favoritism to the rich among them and were despising or relegating to the corners the poor among them. That was going on. And at the close of chapter 3, when we last spent some time in James's letter, James seriously addressed the damage of uncontrolled language. He even suggested that believers were blessing God with their words and then turning around and cursing God's children with their words. There existed in the church what James called a, an earthly wisdom was guiding. And he said, listen, that earthly wisdom that I'm seeing in the church, it's sourced in the devil. And finally, James, at the very close of chapter 3, he elevated high the believers who were the peacemakers. These peacemakers were the ones who were fostering in the, in the Christian communities the climate in, in which righteousness could flourish like a wonderful harvest. But the very fact that James is celebrating and lifting high the peacemakers tells us that there must have been a need for the peacemaker. It strongly suggests that there was pervasive conflict among the believers and what was happening was not fostering righteousness but unrighteousness. Sometimes we envision the early church as being like nearly heaven on earth. We have a very sanctified picture of the early, early church. And think, boy, that must have just been such a beautiful, holy, reverent, heavenly experience on earth. And perhaps for a moment, like in the upper room when they were waiting for and receiving the Holy Spirit, perhaps it was a true little moment of heaven on earth. But according to James's writings and the writings that follow from Paul and Peter, that soon gave way to the realities of group dynamics, if you will. It soon gave way to the desire for self-gain, the, the desire for status, the desire for power. And here in the fourth chapter of James, he's going to confront some terrible behavior that he's witnessing in the church. Let's pray about that. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I want to ask for a gift this Sabbath. And that gift is that you would heal our minds that we might be able to spiritually focus. Lord, this world sometimes breaks up our minds and makes us have a hard time being able to really focus on spiritual matters. So, Lord, give us that gift of spiritual focus, spiritual attentiveness. And, and, Lord, if our mind wanders from your voice, help it to come right back. 
And Lord, that's key. We want you to speak through your word to us. Lord, I have some thoughts and conclusions I want to share that I believe you've led and blessed, but ultimately, Lord, you just speak and tell everyone here, each individual, whatever they need to hear that would edify and encourage and uplift. So, Lord, more of your voice, less of my own, we give you this moment. We submit to you. In your name we pray. Amen. It doesn't take much at all to realize that there were some serious conflicts going on in the church. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your, the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Quarrels, conflicts, wars were happening among them, among the membership. This isn't the church was having conflict with those that didn't belong to the church. This is there was quarrels and conflicts and wars happening inside of the Christian community. And James is asking a powerful question that's going to set up the whole section we're going to look at today. And the, the powerful question is asking this. He goes, look, it's happening. We all know it's happening. There's quarrels, there's conflicts, there's war. The question is, what is the source of all of this conflict? And then he proposes a possible source, or he identifies the source with a second question. Is it not your pleasures? James suggests that when members of the body of Christ hold on to their, their own desires, their own pleasures, their own preferences for how things ought to be, when members of the bodies of Christ kind of hold on to self-interest, it's going to lead to conflicts and quarrels and wars. Listen, I could tell stories about wars in the church, but that would be paying attention and glorifying the wrong side of this coin. <laughs> but it happens, and we all know it too well. Listen to this. self Focusing bears bad fruit. Other focusing bears good fruit. Whenever within a church community, the members began to, to demand, begin to politic or push for, for what they want, as opposed to an attitude of what is best for the larger body, what is best for the mission God has given us, whenever that attitude is present in a faith community, there's going to be quarrels, there's going to be conflicts, there's going to be wars. Now, there is a place for brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree. There's a place to disagree. But it is always to be wrapped in love and kindness. Now, what James is dealing with was apparently not just a, a few little spats. A, a few people here and there were having some hard times. It, it seems to be much more significant than just that. Starting with verse 1 again. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says it was lust that was creating the conflict. And our minds instantly, we hear the word lust and we kind of pigeonhole the idea into the idea of, 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 of sexuality and sexual desire. But, but in this instance, lust is simply being used as, a, as an intense, eager coveting for something that you don't get. Intense self-seeking was the source of the quarrels. And what was it that some of the members in the church, what were they so anxiously desiring? Well, James really, he doesn't spell it out for us in clarity, but we can surmise some things. For example, just at the beginning of chapter 3 or so, he says, listen, don't be so quick to desire to be a teacher among the Christian community. Don't be so quick to try to be the rabbi of the Christian community with all of its prestige and support and honor and respect. There's a higher standard of judgment. And so maybe within the church there was this, this rush and this small uprising of people wanting to get in on the ground level, so to speak, looking for their power and their status and their prestige in this community. Maybe that's what they were lusting after. Listen. If there is any status given in the church, it is to be spirit-led and given, given by the body and humbly received. If there is any status in the church, it is not to be gained through self-promotion or politicking or manipulations. And I fear I see growing trends in our church of men and women called to ministry building their brand to politic and market their way to power and influence in the church instead of saying, God, you decide who my audience is going to be. If there's any status given in the church, it is to be spirit-led given by the body, and humbly received. Now, what do we do with that phrase in verse 2? You lust, you deeply covet, and did not get, so you murder. Was there actually murdering going on in the early, early Christian church? I mean, I don't really know with certainty, but there's a few ways to understand this little phrase that James has written. A very plausible explanation would be to assume that James is using the teachings of Jesus, pulling from the Sermon on the Mount, which we've seen him pull from that portion of Scripture a lot already, those, those teachings from the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, that perhaps... We can assume that James, what he has in mind is he's using the teachings of Jesus when Jesus equated being angry with the brother as having murder in your heart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, you have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. 
It's very, very plausible that when James says that you lust and you do not get so you murder, he's thinking about this dynamic that if you have anger and hatred in your heart towards another, it is as if you have murdered them in your heart. It's plausible. There's another way to understand this phrase, and, and, and maybe James is kind of trying to head off an eventuality. That the phrase could be suggesting that James is, is saying, listen, if you continue in this, in this intense desire, it's going to lead to fights and quarrels and wars, and the result of that could be murder. Don't go there. Pull back before it arrives at that devastating place. It's plausible. However, another possibility is to take it as it reads, that there were murders happening in the Christian community. I say this carefully, but, but follow this through. Remember that James is writing to a people of Jewish heritage, the people of God, the ancient Jewish faith handed right down through whom Christ belonged to. And, and, and these men and women in the early, early church, mostly Jewish of heritage, they had received Jesus as their Savior, but they're still very much entrenched in their religious culture, and they're still learning how to follow Jesus' teachings. I think one of the expressed purposes of James' whole letter is to teach an early Christian group how to live according to Jesus' teachings and example. And in the Jewish culture... Murder was an acceptable religious way to solve disagreements. It was not a right way. It was not according to God's will. But it happened all too frequently. Think of Saul who became Paul the, and before he met Christ. He was commissioned to arrest and kill Christians because they disagreed on matters of theology. Think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He drew his sword and he attempted to kill the high priest's servant. And of course, ironically, Jesus was killed over religious differences revolving around power and status in the church. So it's not totally unreasonable to consider that maybe James is addressing actual murders taking place in the Christian community. That gives us a sense of, wow, things were broken. Unless you think that Christians would never do such a thing. Just remember, for example, the American Civil War or World War II. Christians on either side killing each other over a different political belief. Whatever exactly was going on, I think it's safe to say that what was happening here was more than just a few disagreements and a few people were having a hard time getting along. I think something serious was happening and threatening to break the church. So, their spiritual moral failure was rooted in their fighting for what they strongly, selfishly desired, power, prestige, and things of the like, and they failed very much because they were not praying. It says here, you do not have because you do not ask. And, and, and those of you who are asking, you're not receiving because you're asking wrongly. 
They were pursuing perhaps position in the church, but going about it the wrong way with the wrong motives. Some were failing to make it a matter of prayer at all. And let us never be a church that goes about the work of the Lord and leaves prayer sitting on a table somewhere else. And others were praying, but they were praying wrongly because they had selfish motives. And oh my, how easy it is to pray so hard for what we want, but we pray so feebly for what God wants. They prayed with the desire to gain so that they could spend their gain on what pleasured them, on what their preferences were. They wanted to gratify self, not serve others. And again, self-focused motives bear bad fruit. Other-focused motives bear good fruit. In the Old Testament... The people of God were often symbolized as the wife of the Lord, Jeremiah 31. And in the New Testament, the church was identified often as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 is an example. And when a, a spouse is unfaithful, it is adultery. And given the symbolism of the wife or bride of God's people, James employs this feminine word, adulteresses. Spiritually unfaithful bride. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in you, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These are challenging words. A Christian can either be faithfully devoted to God or faithfully devoted to the world. God and the world stand in opposition God draws men's hearts towards Him. The world draws men's hearts away from God. This is stark language, isn't it? It's strong language, and it's a stark truth that we wish wasn't true. I mean, just on all honesty, we wish there was a whole lot more gray in a sentence like that. <laughs> but James doesn't paint it that way. He says, you cannot be faithfully devoted to the world, that which stands against God, and God at the same time. He says, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. It would then imply that friendship with God makes you an enemy of the world. And to have a, a warm, familiar attitude towards the evil of this world, there is much good in this world that we ought to be friendly with. But to have a, a warm, familiar attitude with the evil that exists in this world is to be on good terms with God's enemy. To, to adopt the values which stand against God is to be on good terms with God's enemy. 
And the person who deliberately, and the key word here is deliberately. Deliberately meaning with awareness, with knowledge, with purposefulness. You choose the world. The person who deliberately chooses to be friendly with the elements of this broken world that stand against God is deliberately choosing to make themselves an enemy of God. Whoa. God, that's tough. I mean, that really raises the bar on what it means to live in this world, but not being of this world. I'm reminded in John 17 where Jesus was praying there in the upper room before the cross to the Father on behalf of His followers. And He says, God, He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This would be wise to prayerfully consider about your own walk with God. And I'm not even going to attempt to try to list in some concrete terms, hey, well, here's what represents God's side, and, and here's what's on the world's side. I, I couldn't do that even if I really wanted to. But this is something to really think about, to bring to the Lord in prayer. And, and one evaluation might be to ask yourself, what do I find entertaining? Are you entertained by that which stands against God? I think that's a fruitful consideration to contemplate. Let me just offer this passage. Jesus' words and in the words of Paul set the bar pretty high. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. And then the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, he says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there's any excellence in, and if anything worthy of praise, then dwell on these things. In other words, Paul's saying, if you want to be a friend of God, live in these things. For these are the things that God values. The Scripture speaks truthfully. James says, Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? That God is a jealous God? But He's not jealous like you and I are jealous from a, from a position of brokenness and sin. God is a jealous God from a position of holiness and righteousness. Even in the law of God, Exodus 20, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make or worship idols as if they were a god, because I am a jealous God. And here's all I'm going to say about that. God loves you with such passion 
that it breaks his heart when we love another more than him. Yeah, he's a jealous God because he perfectly loves you. And it breaks his heart when you love another. Listen, God has set a high standard. A high standard for wholehearted love and devotion for his children. But along with the high standard, he is a compassionate and loving God who understands our broken condition. And here James, he he pulls from Proverbs 3, verse 34. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives a greater grace. The grace he offers is greater than his judgment. His grace is sufficient for those like me, like you, who struggle to give him fully devoted hearts. And his grace, it's not given just to kind of cover up our struggle. His grace is also given to work within us so that we might grow and develop in character so that ever more we begin to choose friendship with God over friendship with the world. It's humble people that humble themselves before God that are the recipients of His grace. Proud people before God are those who choose to satisfy my own pleasures. And they're proud. And they're choosing self in this world and holding back the great grace that God has for them. So God's grace is given to bring us to that humble place of choosing Him. Let us be humble before our Lord so that we might receive great grace. The bar is high. God's grace is higher. And we should praise God for that. So, What actions can one take to to move toward devotion to God and away from being friendly devoted to that which stands against God? James, in just a few sentences, gives us ten action steps, if you will, that will prove to be spiritually productive. Listen, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, the way James wrote this counsel in in the Greek language and the syntax and all of that stuff, the way that he wrote it, he wrote it as a series of commands, imperatives. And and, and they aren't just saying, you know, this is something you might want to think about. You know, maybe you should pick one or two of these and give it a half-hearted try. No, no, they're written as commands with some urgency. So let's walk through these very, very quickly Submit, therefore, to God. Submitting to God means place yourself under His Lordship. He is our Lord. He is our Master. We commit ourselves to obeying and following Him in all things. Submit to Him. We are called to submit to His ways even when we would prefer our own ways. Our submission to Him says, nope, your way, not my way. And listen, submitting to God is not a weak action. If some evildoer came into the church right now and said, submit to me, none of us would want to do that. 
It's humiliating. But submitting to God is not an act of cowardice. Submitting to God is an act of spiritual strength and courage. And where do we get that kind of spiritual courage and strength? Praise God, it's a gift of God through His Spirit working within us. Submit to God and then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When we submit to God's authority, now we're resisting the devil's authority. The Apostle Paul, later in Ephesians 6, he said, put on the armor of God in order to resist the devil's attack. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, he likened the devil to a roaring lion seeking to devour, and he called upon the believer to resist the attack with faith and firm devotion. When we, in faith, resist the devil, James says, he'll flee. The devil's power is great, but he who is for us is far greater than he who is against us. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Draw near to God and he'll run towards you. And the best way to resist the devil is not to focus on the devil and his ways. The best way to resist the devil is to turn and give the devil your back and draw near to God. And if we put our attention to coming near to God, James assures us that that God doesn't flee. God comes closer to you. And certainly, drawing near to God, it would entail repentance of heart. We turn towards God and His love and grace and we fall before Him in humility. And certainly, drawing near to God would include talking to Him in prayer and listening to Him through the words of Scripture and and serving Him by serving others and engaging in a Christ-centered community of faith. All of those things, those practices of growing your relationship with Christ is literally describing drawing near to God. And in setting their desires on their own pleasures, they were resisting God and drawing near to the world. When you draw near to the world, the world will draw near to you. James calls reverse that action. Draw near to God. Pursue God. Don't pursue the things that stand against God. Pursue the things of God, and He will come nearer to you. And then James, uncharacteristically, because he's been referring to the community as brothers and brethren all along, now he says, you sinner, clean your hands. You double-minded, purify your heart. Our hands reflect our actions, and our heart reflects our thoughts. The coveting desire to pursue self and pleasure, it results in both sins in thought and action, heart and hand. Maybe James is echoing King David's psalm, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? We might phrase it this way, who may draw near to God and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and is not sworn deceitfully. How can we obtain clean hands and pure hearts? By asking God to work a work of His grace in us and to clean us from the inside out. And then there's this little phrase that's a little bothersome to us. 
It says, be miserable, mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? First of all, know this. This is in no way calling Christians to be depressed, miserable people. Can I have some smiles here this morning? I know it's warm. Perk up and be happy. We are actually supposed to be living testimonies of the joy of salvation. As Paul put it, we are actually supposed to be rejoicing in the Lord always. And when you stop, do it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. So we're not supposed to be miserable, mourning, weeping, no laughter type of people. Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet Earth. So what does James mean when he calls the believer to be miserable and mourn and weep? Well, actually, I think what he's doing here is he's calling for repentance. Just consider it this way. Instead of finding pleasure in the evil of this world, repent and see that evil as miserable. Instead of laughing with joy in the pursuits of the pleasures of this world, repent, turn from that, and let your sinful laughter be turned into repentant mourning. You see how it works? Let your sinful joy be turned into repentant weeping. What James is calling for is his, he goes, turn from being a friend to the world. Repent and pivot. The prayer might be, God, work within us so that we might see evil as miserable and not joyful. I'm reminded as I was preparing these words of a lyric and a powerful song put out by Hillsong United. And the lyric is just a little prayer moment in the song. And it reads this way, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's what James is saying by saying, mourn and weep and grieve. Turn to God so that my heart breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. Don't laugh at. Don't be entertained by. Don't find joy in the things that stand against God. But turn towards God. Be His friend and let it break your heart in the way that it breaks God's heart. That's what James is calling for. Live in the joy of the Lord, not the joy of the world. And true happiness is found. And then, where the call to actions began, it kind of returns with this idea of humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Recognize our poverty, spiritual poverty, and how much we need God's grace. And believe the truth that we're never going to gain spiritual vitality and victory on our own ability and resources. We're only going to gain that joyful spiritual vitality and victory by humbling ourselves before God. Yep, James has pulled from the book of Proverbs again. Proverbs 3.34, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. But he's also reminding them of the words of Jesus. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So where we started today in James 4, verse 1, it indicated that the followers of Jesus were, were quarreling, they were in conflict, they were at war with one another. He's, he's confronted them as being spiritually adulterous. He's called them sinners. He's called them double-minded. But now he softens again in his appeal moment, and he calls them brethren. 
And having confronted their wrongness and appealing for repentant actions, he's now just asking them to just stop it. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of the law. There's only one lawgiver, one judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? His final crescendo in this portion of his letter. He's just saying, stop it. Stop speaking against one another that way. Stop slandering one another's character in the way that you slander. Stop gossiping in the secret corners about one another. I think James would even say this. Stop saying what might be absolutely true, but you're saying it with malicious intent and not speaking the truth in love. Stop it, James says. And he lays out a sound reasoning to respond to his appeal to just stop this behavior. And here's his logic. When you wrongly speak against a brother, you are standing in judgment over them. And to stand in judgment against a brother in Christ is to break the law of God. Likely he's thinking of the royal law, James 2.8. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you speak against a brother in Christ, you're breaking that law. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And so speaking against a brother in Christ, you speak against the law and you become a judge of the law. You become someone who's saying, I'm above the law. I stand in authority over the law. Rather than submitting to God, and obeying His law, you're choosing to stand on the law as a judge. You're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge over it. Now listen, we are to be spiritually discerning. We are supposed to discern right from wrong. We're allowed to say that is right, that is not right. We are supposed to be redemptive and hold one another accountable when you recognize that I am stepping outside of the God's will. You're allowed to talk to me in love and kindness about that, but we are not to stand as a judge over one another. We are to love one another even when we recognize the choices that the other is making is not the right choice. Now, the real problem with standing as a judge over the law is that you're standing somewhere where you absolutely do not belong. And that's what James says. You don't want to stand there because that's where God's supposed to stand. There's only God is entitled to stand as judge in regards to His law. Only God is the lawgiver. Only God has the authority to judge. Only God is able to rightly save or rightly destroy. So James's final challenge and appeal is this. In this portion of his letter, it comes in the form of the question. The question is, who do you think you are? And the implied answer is this. You're not God. You're not the judge. You have no right to be fighting against each other. You have no right to stand in judgment over your neighbor. You have no right to be harsh and unkind and critical and finding fault with another. So let's close by pulling back and 
kind of seeing the, the wide-angle counsel that's been given to us, both as individuals, as followers of Jesus, and as a church family. We are to avoid conflict with one another, especially when it arises from selfish desires. We are to pray for peace and unity in the church and pray with the right motives, motivated that our love for one another might bring glory to God. We are to devote ourselves to God and not the evil of this world. We are to humble ourselves in submission to God that we might receive His grace. We are to draw near to God in repentance and turn away from that which draws us away from God. We are to be a community of believers who avoids inappropriately speaking against one another. We are not to stand in God's place and presume ourselves a judge. What it really boils down to is James is saying, do what Jesus asked us to do. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We desire that great grace that you have to offer. And I pray that your grace would be at work within us individually that we might live this life the way you would have us live it. Help us, Lord, to move towards being more fully devoted to you. In your name we pray. Amen.